I'd like for you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 31 of Luke chapter 15. My daughter Marissa was about three years old. Josiah was about a year old. And like many parents, we had gone into, I believe it was Target. And you know how parents are. You got to do grocery shopping. You got to buy some things. So you divide and conquer. So Dee had the baby. I had Marissa. And she said, this is your list of things. This is my list of things. Let's go. We're trying to hold the baby, trying to keep bringing him in, looking at the aisle. And I said, okay, let's go. And then we, we were talking a little bit. And we looked around. And um, I said, where's Marissa? And my wife said, I thought you had Marissa. And I said, I thought you had Marissa. How many of you parents know what I'm talking about? Good, thank you. Don't make me feel bad that I'm the only one that loses my kids in stores. And you know the feeling of, yeah, she's probably hiding, but maybe someone took her. Every parent has gone through that. And so I said, Marissa, Marissa, where are you? Marissa. And he's saying, where, where, Marissa, are you are? And we start going around the store looking around for her. Now, two weeks before, we saw in the news that someone in a store had taken a kid into the bathroom, put a wig on them, and taken them out. So immediately my wife says, hey, remember the story? I wonder she's in the bathroom. Someone's taken her. So I run to the bathroom, look at the bathroom, make sure that no one's putting a wig on my daughter to take her out. We talked to a manager. We said, hey, has anybody seen a little pretty girl with dark hair and beautiful skin? And, and we don't know where she's at. And we start panicking. And finally, we found her. Hiding, playing under the coats. She found her little play space. And she was oblivious to the fact, hey, daddy. It's like, <laughs> Grabbed her, held her. She said, hey, Daddy, well, are you okay? And I don't hold her like this real tight. Because every parent knows what it feels like to think I maybe have just lost my kid. Well, that is a little peek into the heart of a father or a mother that many of you have already experienced that season in your life. Today I want to talk to you about Luke chapter 15 because it exposes the heart of a father to us. Some of you are here today and you have strayed spiritually and some of you have, are coming here, are visiting today and you are far from God and I acknowledge that. In the early service, I prayed with many people, uh, some that were very far from God. Uh, one woman that confessed, I, I, this is my first time here I don't believe in God, but today I felt something with tears streaming down her face. She said, today this message touched me, and I don't know what it is. I said, it's the God calling you to himself. The Pharisees, who were very, very adamantly against Jesus, they were his arch enemies. It tells us in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, but the Pharisees... And the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The big complaint that the Pharisees had against Jesus is that Jesus would not just hang around with the holy crowd. 
that oftentimes it was the prostitute that would come to Jesus and he would talk with her and show her mercy and compassion and not push her away. It was the tax collectors that were hated by the Jewish people because they worked for the Roman government and extracted money from the regular people. It was the thugs and the thieves. It was the outcasts. It was those that people would cross the sidewalk instead of walking past them. Oftentimes, those were the ones that would come to Jesus and Jesus would not push them away. The Pharisees, who were very religious looked at Jesus who allowed people like that around him, and they despised him. On this occasion, they were muttering to one another, how could he say he's holy and be a teacher and allow people like that around him? They didn't address Jesus directly, but Jesus heard them criticizing him, and so he answers them in a string of parables. There's three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Today, I only have time to get into one of the parables, the parable of the lost son. We've heard it called the prodigal story or parable about the prodigal, but all three of these parables have the same thing in common. There's something that was lost, and when the owner finds it, There is great celebration and great value in that which is lost. The parable of the prodigal, I want you to turn in your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter 15, verse 11. I'm going to cover quickly with you five phases in returning back to the Father's heart. It tells us in verse 11, Jesus continued and he begins to tell them a parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all that he had together and set off for a distant country. If you're taking notes today, I'm talking about the five phases of returning back to God. Number one, write this down. The running phase, the running phase. It tells us in this parable that the two boys, the younger son came to the father, and while the father was still alive, he says to his father, I would like my share of the inheritance while I'm still alive. Well, first of all, let me say that was extremely insulting in any culture, but especially in the Jewish culture. Because in essence, you're saying, hey, you're not dead yet, but I would like my inheritance. It was unheard of. It was insulting. It was almost like saying, in my mind, you're already dead. I want the benefits of your death to come to me. In the Jewish culture, the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would get one-third of the inheritance. So this younger son received from the father one-third of his inheritance. And I want you to notice what happens here. The Bible says that that this son uh, took what he had been given to him, and he liquidated the assets, turned it into cash, and then set off for a distant country. 
Now, if you're here today and you are sliding into the prodigal zone, or you are running from God, or you have been running from God for some time, let me just diagnose a little bit how it happens. Uh, First of all, let me say that it happens when we start to pull away from God. We don't want God's interference in managing our business like this younger son said, hey, I don't want to stay at your house anymore. I want your inheritance, but I don't want you. I want what you have to offer me, but I don't want to stay in your house. The parable doesn't tell us why, but my gut feeling is if you would talk to that younger son, he would say, I want my independence, I want my freedom, I don't want people telling me how to live, I don't want restrictive rules, I don't want to be associated with them, I want to be my own person, I want to have my freedom. I want to pursue what I want to pursue. I want to seek after the dreams that I want to seek after. And I feel like if I'm on my own, I will be able to be much more who I really am. He starts to pull away from his father. I want you to notice that oftentimes as we go down the prodigal way, we start to pull away from the father. And I want you to be clear about this. Look up at me because this is really important. You are either at this time, while I speak, at this season of your life, you are either pulling towards the Father or you are pulling away from the Father. There is no middle neutral ground. In your life, you are either pulling towards the Father and your relationship pursuing Him or you are pulling away from the Father, straying away from the Father in your relationship with Him. This young son, because of his own desires, he starts to harden himself. The second thing that I want you to notice is that we create distance between us and God. It says that he set off for a distant country. As the hardening of our heart begins to occur... We have less and less contact with the Father. In fact, we want less and less to do with the Father. Uh, We want to go to a distant country. We want to establish our own identity. Uh, We don't want people to know who we are. We want to live our own life. And so the Bible says that he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. He not only wanted to be away from the Father, but he wanted to live according to his own rules and not have the limitations of his Father's house on him. When someone is raised within the church or raised around the things of God, I find it oftentimes with kids that go off to college, their parents say, well, when they were at home, they were such good kids. And then they go off to college and they start viewing their social media and they say, hey, what happened to my kid? Well, what happened to your kid is that your kid had not internalized your values while he was at your house or she was at your house. They had the constraints of your rules, but once they got on their own, they started living like they want to live. The Bible says that this young man went off was at a distance, squandered what they had in wild living. 
In fact, that word wild is found nowhere in the Bible except for this story. It's almost like we had to invent a word for how wild this guy was. The next stage is what I call the consequence stage. So the running phase eventually gives over to the consequence stage. Look what it says in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. How many of you know there's always an end to the party? You can party so long, but the party always ends. And the next day, you don't wake up, you come to. And this man, flush with cash, no restraints, no one says, aren't you the son of so-and-so? No one knows him. Goes to a different country, and he has money, youth, he's got a party inside of him, and he's having a blast, the time of his life. Let me tell you this. There are seasons when our running from God feels fun. There are times in your life that you are running away from God and living your life, and you said, I should have done this a long time ago. This is fun. I'm happy. I'm having a good time, and I am enjoying myself. I can be myself. There are no restraints in my life. He had money. He had friends. Uh, you know, you, when you have a lot of money and you're paying for the drinks, you got a lot of friends. Um, he had a lot of friends. He was popular. A lot of people were gathering around him. He was having the time of his life. There was a season in which that illusion of happiness was strong. It was going well for him, but he was living in a short-term bubble because the party always comes to an end. And I want you to know, I want you to understand this, that oftentimes the good time that we're living in is an illusion. It's a short time. It's a time where we feel good about it. I remember, I've had this conversation with many people. I remember sitting down with a married man who had just walked out on his wife of 20 years and hooked up with a, a younger woman that was about 20 years younger than him. And he was saying, I'm having fun. I'm good. I should have done this a long time ago. I was in a bad marriage. I feel free now. I'm creative. She brings out the best in me. You cannot tell me that this is wrong. I said, how long have you been with her? Three months. I said, here's the thing. Your wife has known you for 20 years. She's known you for three months. A year from now, she's going to know who you really are. And I'm going to tell you something. This will not last. Oh, no, you don't know, Pastor. I'm, I'm better. A year later, hey, how's the girl? Uh, she, you know, things didn't work out. <laughs> Pastor, can you help me? You know, my wife doesn't talk to me. Kids don't talk with me. No, 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 no. You know what? You have gone down a trail in which the illusion for a while filled you but the bubble will burst at some time or another. And notice what it says during this consequence phase. It says that when he had spent everything, 
There was a severe famine in the whole country. And by the way, I love how sometimes God accelerates the end to our party. Hello. Sometimes it's external circumstances that God will help make the party come to an end quicker. In this case, it was a famine. And he began to be in need. And so it says, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. So literally... The Bible says that he attached himself uh, or glued himself to a foreigner that he depended on so that he could survive. Just an insight here. Can I let you know during this phase that we oftentimes, during a phase where the, where the party has come to an end and we still have a need in our, in our heart because we're out of the Father's house, oftentimes we will attach ourselves to someone that fulfills our need immediately because we're dependent upon that person. And we think that it's a mutual beneficial relationship, but ultimately it becomes a relationship that masters us or dominates our life in a negative way. When you're running from God, when you're looking to fulfill your life somehow outside of God's design, outside of the love of the Father, you will be driven to things that in the short term make you feel fulfilled, but in the long term become your master. If there are any former addicts in the house here, or if there are any current addicts in the house here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, in the beginning, you take that substance or that snort or that pill because it makes you feel good for the moment. And in the beginning, it's great. You feel good. You relax. It stresses you out. Just one more pill. This is so nice. You say that you can keep it under control when people warn you about it, and you say, I'm not like that. I'm not one of those. I can keep it under control. But you find yourself needing it more and more to be normal, to get stress relief, and so you use it more and more until you find the day when you depend on it to function, and the more you use it, the less function you functional you are at work and other places and before you know it the very thing that you thought was helping you out now has become a master what gave you pleasure and relief in the beginning now has become a dominant master that causes you to be obsessed about getting the next tie getting the next fix and so you lie manipulate your relationships you'll do anything for the fix and you find yourself as a prisoner to that which in the begin gave you pleasure. That's addiction. Now this individual here finds himself attached to a relationship to meet his needs because he's not in his father's house and he becomes dependent, and not only dependent, but listen, Sin always leads us to something other than God to master our life. And the Bible says uh, his foreign master sent him to a field to feed the pigs. And as he fed the pigs, and by the way, for a Jewish man, 
one of the most disgusting things that you could be around are pigs because the Jewish people did not eat pork. And so it was the lowest of the low to be around pigs. Can I tell you something? When you run from God and find yourself mastered by other things, you will ultimately find yourself doing things that you never thought you would ever do. In fact, you will find yourself doing things that at one time you thought were disgusting in life that you would never do in life, but the more you are driven, the longer you're away from God, the more you find yourself doing things that at one time would be inconceivable for you to do, but you find yourself right in the midst of it because you're away from the Father. So he's feeding pigs. And not only is he feeding pigs, he's hungry, he's dirty, he's longing to eat the slop that the pigs would eat. And by the way, the pigs in those days ate uh, pods of the carob tree or the locust tree, which were not fit for human beings to eat. They were really nasty, but it's what the pigs got to eat. And so he finds himself longing for things that are Well, he never thought he would long for, which leads to the third phase, the awakening phase. Verse 17, this is my favorite phase in this entire passage, when he came to his senses. When he came to his senses. I have parents that ask me, I have a son or daughter that's a prodigal. They were raised in the things of God, and now they're very, very far from God. They say, Pastor, what can I pray? Tell me. And I always tell them the same thing. You need to pray this. God, bring them to a point where they come to their senses. You, you say, well, what does that mean that, they came, that he came to his senses? Well, it was a wake-up. There was a moment in time where he's feeding the pigs. He's dirty. He's hungry. He's tired. He's longing for things that he, in his former life, would never even long for. And one day, we don't know why. We don't know exactly how. But a light bulb clicks on in his head and he says, what am I doing? How did I get here? Why am I living this way? And he looks up and he looks around and realizes this is not the way I'm intended to live. This is not my destiny. This is not what I was engineered for, created for. When he comes to his senses. Now let me just make a note here that I believe oftentimes we don't come to our senses because we we are enabled Sometimes the worst thing that you could do for someone that's in a phase of coming to their senses is rescue them from their consequences. 
Some of you are pulled in because you love your sons or daughters or a person that's struggling. You're pulled in to constantly fix their problem, relieve them from their issues. But can I tell you something? Sometimes the greatest gift that someone can receive in life is to hit the bottom. Some of you would not be here today. Some of you would not be here today unless you hit the bottom. Some of you stayed in the condition you stayed a long time because there are people around you enabling you, rescuing you from the bottom, not allowing you to feel the full consequences. And so remember that when you pray for a prodigal son or daughter and say, Lord, bring them back to you, you may be asking that God would bring them into difficult circumstances. Because oftentimes it's the pressure of difficulty. It's the trial of a job that we're fired from, a spouse that's leaving, a cancer report, a drunk driving um, court case that may send us to jail for five years, a test that we receive that may indicate that there's a venereal disease or AIDS coming upon us that sometimes is the wake-up call that we need to say, what am I doing when we come to our senses? The Bible says that when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. Uh, What wakes him up? The illusion starts to come to an end. The party's over. Uh, He begins to reap the consequences of his lifestyle. Now, he's living what he's sown. It takes a while before you reap what you sow, good and bad. He starts to experience unfulfilled needs. He's hungry. Uh, He sinks to a new low in satisfying his needs, a place he never thought he would be before. He begins to compare what he could have with what he has. Immediately when he comes to his senses, he starts thinking about his father and his father's household. You know, I pray that there would be a wake-up call, an awakening in people that God is reaching out to. I compare it a bit to when you're driving. Have you ever been very, very tired after a long day of work or stayed up late at night and you have a long trip to make? And I've been in this place before in life. I remember in college working hours and hours and then driving shortly after college, driving and um, feeling super tired and you roll down the window to try to get the cold air to wake you up. You slap yourself in the face a little bit to try to wake up. Um, You turn the music on real loud so the beat will try to wake you up. But inevitably, if you're super, super tired, your eyes start to close as you try to keep them awake like some of you are this morning. Um, (laughs) Your eyes try to stay awake like, hey, I'm trying to be engaged, but my body's saying, This is a good nap time. And then it may have happened to some of you where suddenly your car is jolted by, they call them uh, wake-up lines, or another word for them is rumblers. And what rumblers are, or rumbler strips are, is they're carved into the side of the road. How many of you know what I'm talking about? 
They're carved into the side of the road, and your, your car starts to go like... How many of you have been awakened by the rumblers before? And then suddenly your eyes wake up and you say, what's going on? Wow, I was close to the edge. Man, that was close. And suddenly your heart starts to beat. Adrenaline kicks in and you're awake because the rumblers have awakened you. You know what I'm praying for? You know what I'm praying for in the back? I can't see your faces all that good. Yeah, you're waving at me. You know what I'm praying for? I'm praying that this morning, some of you will be jolted by the rumbling of the Holy Spirit. And that the way that God knows how to do it, I don't know how, but God knows how to do it, that there'll be a rumbling in your spirit and that you'll awaken to the fact of I was so close to the edge. Wow, I was in a bad situation. My car was heading towards disaster. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've awakened me. The Bible tells us that this young man finally awakened, which leads me to the next phase, which is really an important phase. It's the shame phase. Verse 18, the young man is awakened and Jesus, as he tells the story, says that the young man said to himself, I will set out and go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to the father. Let me tell you that there are two sorrows that you can experience when you've been awakened. One of them is conviction, and the second is shame or guilt. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. Conviction is what the Holy Spirit does when He comes in when you're a believer and you're living outside of the way you should be living, the Holy Spirit reminds you, that's not you. Why are you living like that? Why are you saying that? Why are you behaving that way? And we feel this pain inside, but conviction tells us you can change. That's not the way you need to live. Go to God. Conviction leads us to repentance, to pursue after God. It's a positive pain that tells us we can change. The other side, the negative side, is shame and guilt. Shame and guilt comes into your life and says, you're a loser. You'll never change. Other people will, but don't try to act like them because you know who you are. You are unworthy of going back to God. You will always fall back. There is something toxic and dysfunctional and broken and dark about your soul. You are unworthy to ever think that you could go back to God. It speaks to our identity, not our behavior. It puts a label upon us that says you should never 
even attempt to be that way because you will never be what God has called you to be. Shame causes us to walk into a place like this with our eyes down and with a sense that I will never, never be who God has called me to be. Guilt labels us and makes us live without joy because it makes us feel like I will never be a son I will never be a daughter. I will always be just a hired hand. That's what guilt and shame does on our life. The conviction of the Holy Spirit draws us back to God with hope. Shame and guilt drive us away from God. The Bible tells us that this young man struggled with this. What keeps the prodigal away? Well, a false sense of temporary fulfillment, not feeling the full consequences of their decision, doubt, wonder whether they would even fit in again, pride, hard to admit that they were wrong, fear maybe that God and others won't accept them, or maybe that they'll fail again. And maybe some of you are sitting in this congregation today You're in, but you really feel like an outsider. You're here, but it's never us. It's them. You're in attendance, but you're not in community. Because there's a dark shame upon your life that lies to you. And says to you, you will, you do not belong with those people. Number five, not only the running phase leads to the consequence phase, leads to the awakening phase, leads to the shame phase, and finally the restoration phase. It tells us. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And against you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I want you to hear me. I want you to look at me. This is so, so important. If you haven't heard anything in this entire message, I want you to hear the heart of the father. The son was rehearsing his speech. Please let me live in the servant's shed. I've sinned against you. I, I won't even act like your son. I've disgraced your name. I'm, I'm, I know I don't even deserve to go into your house. Little did he know that the father, every day, it seems like the father went out and looked at the road and said, where is my son? Little, little did he know that his father had an ache within his heart, feeling I love my son and I'm distanced from him. And that the father would view the, the, the scout over to see where his son was and when he was coming And when the father saw the image of his son 
miles away, the father, like every father does, knows he raised that boy. He knew how he walked. He knew his silhouette. He looked different because he was shabby. He was skinny. He walked with his head down, but it was unmistakably his son. And the reaction of the father gives you an insight into the heart of the father because as soon as the father saw him, he didn't stay there and cross his arms and, and say, I hope my son comes and grovels before me. I'll, I'll barely listen. No, without even a thought, the Bible says that the father raised his loins and he ran. He lost his dignity and ran with all his might going to the son, the dirty son, the son with shame, the son with his head down. And he ran and when he saw his son... The son didn't know, is my father angry? Or is my father crying? The Bible says that this father wraps his arms around his son, kisses him, and weeps over him. It was not what the son expected, but it's the heart of the father. The Bible says that the father was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father interrupts him and says, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and now is alive again, he was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. I wish I could communicate to you who have come into this place and you have been marred by shame and rejection and guilt, who you can't even say that you're a daughter of the Most High God. I wish I could speak into you, man, that walks around unable to raise your hands in worship to God. You're unable to express because you feel like you can't. You're unworthy. There's something worthy of rejection inside of you because you have not fully grasped or understood this infinite, powerful love of the Father. The Bible says that neither death nor principality nor things present nor things to come nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from this incredible thing that we call the love of God. (laughs) 
But I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. You know, the heart of the Father searches for him. The heart of the Father has compassion on him. The heart of the Father embraces him, honors him, restores his authority, celebrates his return. But there are two prodigals in this story. There's the prodigal that left, but there's the prodigal that stayed but allowed his heart to drift from the Father. You see, there's an older son that's in the field, it tells us, and when he comes near the house, he heard the music and the dancing, so he called out one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? And they said, your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes has come home, you kill the fatted calf. The father says, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother of yours who was dead is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. 